because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to a bonus episode of Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. On this bonus episode, I am interviewing an economist I've become a big fan of lately. His name is Daniel Gorbatenko, and we're going to be discussing the controversial, but I think really hard to refute idea that I'm calling safer outside. This is a contrast to the idea of safer inside, which has been one of the themes of the virtually nationwide lockdown over the last two months, which is that to keep ourselves safe from COVID-19, we need to be mostly locked inside our homes and avoid going outside as much as possible. And uh, I've been very suspicious of this, but in particular, when I started reading uh, Daniel Gorbatenko's work, I really became convinced we're taking the exact wrong approach. And I think it's another illustration of how this lockdown is not at all a scientific phenomenon. It's an incredibly irrational political phenomenon that is misusing a, a very serious concern, namely SARS-CoV-2 or the new coronavirus. It's using that, but to basically abuse us politically with little or no benefit and and doing things that in such a way that it's not helping us very much in terms of the disease. In many ways, it's counterproductive in terms of the disease, as well as really ruining the lives of tens, if not hundreds of millions of Americans. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you agree with it, I hope you really start to share this theme of safer outside. I think Daniel and I will probably work on an article together on this. And I think this can be one of the linchpins of challenging the narrative that the lockdown was a good idea and thus that future lockdowns would be a good idea. Hope you enjoy. By the way, this interview is not going to be on video. Uh, the main reason was that uh, Daniel was in a place where he's not allowed to get a haircut, as many people are having difficulty. Fortunately, in Orange County, I have a, a reliable person from whom I have illicitly gotten two haircuts uh, during the lockdown. So if Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom has an issue with that, I, I know probably does. Uh, he can He can come find me. But yeah, so Daniel didn't want to go on. And uh, so yeah, it's just audio. But even if you're on YouTube, I hope you you find it worth it. And if you're listening on iTunes or anywhere, not iTunes, but Apple Podcasts or anywhere else, it won't make any difference to you. Okay, with that in mind, here's the interview with Daniel Gorbatenko on Safer Outside. Before I bring on today's guest, Dr. Daniel Gorbatenko, an economist who's been writing really, really interesting stuff about this coronavirus, I wanted to give you a little context about how I came upon him and, and why I find his views so interesting. I actually don't remember uh, how I got introduced to an article of his, but he had a Medium article, and it was about challenging the panic narrative around COVID-19. And those of you who know my views on this would know that I'm, I'm very sympathetic to this. But I read a lot of different stuff, and even the stuff where I agree with the conclusion generally, a general frustration of mine is that the level of precision of trying to understand the interrelated cause and effect of any given phenomenon is usually pretty weak. It's, it's rare that somebody's really trying to give the big picture to understand the big picture. And I was noticing just when I was following these stories about 
you know, we can call it SARS-CoV-2. I think that's the, the most formal name for the, the virus. Just there would be all of these things that even I, as obviously a non-virologist, non-epidemiologist, knew to be wrong. And some of these things I talked about in previous Power Hours, such as just the fact that people were not talking about the issue of dose, and yet it's so well known in viruses that the amount of the dose of something that you're exposed to has a huge effect on the fate of the virus. And yet people are talking about death rates of the virus and they're, they're, it's, it's devoid of the mention of dose. And yet that's something we know can make more, you know, more than a 10 X difference in terms of outcome and a whole bunch of issues where just people are being not, not precise. And so I happened upon this article by Daniel, and I just want to read you some sections of it. And it's I'm going to read it to you both because I think it illustrates the level of precision that he's bringing in his analysis, and it also bears on today's topic, which is safer outside. So here's an excerpt from near the end of the article. Most people assume that every contact is equally likely to infect someone and once infected, someone randomly becomes either mildly or severely ill. And I'll just pause. When I saw that, I thought, okay, this person is really thinking about this because this point that, yes, somebody randomly becomes either mildly or severely ill, even the experts talking about this issue are at least putting forward that assumption, and it, it clearly makes no sense whatsoever given the nature of viruses, and yet everyone's taking it for granted. So I just immediately perked up. As soon as I, I saw this, like, oh, this guy's really trying to make some of the relevant distinctions so that we can understand this. Okay, continuing. But longstanding line of research in virology suggests that this is not remotely the case. The severity of disease has been shown to depend dramatically on the viral dose and the capacity to spread disease further. Uh, and sorry, and the capacity to spread disease further may depend on the severity of one's viral load. So that is that it's it affects you uh, what size dose you get. And also, um, that could go on to affect how you how you spread it, whether you spread it, and to what extent you spread it. It says there is a mountain of evidence showing that COVID nineteen spreads vastly better in closed spaces and through close contacts. And I'll just uh, continue. He talks about examples, different kinds of examples of of nursing homes and other confined spaces. And then he continues, this is starting to make the confinement of families, whether enforced through a direct order or a panic campaign and the closure of all public spaces, look a pretty dubious strategy. As a result of it, optimal conditions are created for the virus to spread in large doses to family members of those infected prior to the lockdown. And if the rate of cohabitation of the older and younger adults is high, you probably get dot, 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 the badly hit regions of Italy, where some of the worst hit communes have been under lockdown since February 22nd. It is important to note here that mass staying inside may reduce infections, but this is not the point if it leads to higher rates of severe disease and more deaths, emphasis Alex's. Add to it the social, economic, medical, and psychological toll of keeping the whole populations essentially under house arrests for months. All the draconian measures aimed at making people stay inside should be discontinued immediately, and the resources should be allocated to targeting measure to, to targeted measures such as serological testing. I'm just inserting that's that's mainly testing how many people in the population have had the disease by detecting uh, antibodies. 
testing suspected cases and screening of contacts, shielding the nursing homes to which COVID-19 has not yet spread, boosting ventilation at workplaces to get them to reopen, and so on. Some restrictions like those on mass gatherings in bars and restaurants can be useful, but their goal should not be to keep families sheltered at homes. So when I read this, I thought this this guy is really trying to understand this issue precisely. What he's saying makes total sense in terms of imprisoning people in their homes being a very suboptimal uh, strategy. I mean, that's an understatement, particularly if it if it increases the dose uh, that they're exposed to. And then I also really liked how when he's talking about solutions, he talked about things that would be minimally coercive and maximally effective, such as focusing on nursing homes, which have been just a huge percentage of the deaths, and many of which I think are totally preventable. And I found it very intriguing that he's focused on ventilation, which makes sense if this is something that primarily spreads in confined, uh, poorly ventilated indoor uh, spaces. So I thought whenever I find somebody who's really trying to think carefully about something and who's doing a lot more research than I am, I am very intrigued. So I started promoting his stuff and introduced myself, and we had a couple conversations, and we decided to bring him on the show. So, Daniel, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. It's it's an honor and pleasure to be here. So let me start out by asking you just, I know there's probably a long story here, but I'm interested in how you got interested in this issue and 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 if you agree with my positive assessment of your methodology how you went like what do you think has led you to go about really trying to understand the interrelated causal factors of this so so i got interested in in this thing especially interested when when i actually i heard in a podcast with um Balaji, um I'm sure I'm torturing his surname, but it's it's an American um, investor who has a lot of following on Twitter. And it was early February, I think. And he was already and he was discussing what was happening in Wuhan in in detail. And he was um, at that time very pessimistic, saying that um, this is, first of all, a very transmissible virus. And that it, at that at that time, especially if you believe the Chinese data, it it seemed as though the CFR, and I should say it's 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 an epidemiological term, so it's a case fatality rate. So how many people died die given out of the cases which are confirmed? So the CFR was was very high, like in in. So that, that's that's the ones that, just to interject because I'm big on this distinction that's that's like diagnosed infections versus actual infections yeah, exactly so so the cfr in wuhan especially early was very high it was like uh five uh, percent maybe and and he was saying also that this was also causing a high rate of um hospitalization and especially um a high proportion of people requiring um critical care so especially like uh, not ventilation but not the ventilation which which I've been advocating, but using of um, artificial respirators basically to to take over the job of the person's lungs because they cannot like uh, uh, ensure breathing any breathing anymore. So he was very 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 pessimistic, and he was saying that this is going to reach the West, and that this is uh, going to create the same sort of issues as it did in Wuhan. I think he's. His his forecast is partly has partly been shown to be true and partly not because 
we haven't actually seen a lot of uh, overwhelmed ICUs. And I think one of the reasons for this is that in China, there are actually very few ICU beds for their their population. And that's why. So, so really, in reality, only some areas in Bergamo, in the province of Bergamo in Italy, that they saw over, completely overwhelmed um, ICU ICUs, but not not outside of it. So, 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 so that that made me interested in researching it further. So, what's how what's this virus? How it spreads and and what actually happened in Wuhan? And and I saw what the Chinese did to address it, like the like the total lockdown, which was obviously worse than anything that happened in the West, in a sense, because. Maybe more, yeah, even worse than in Spain and Italy because Spain and Italy are probably only the the two the only two countries where you couldn't even go out to on your own to do exercise for for weeks. You know, you you only could go out to to satisfy like the most basic needs like uh, buying groceries or or like really medical needs and stuff like that. And in Wuhan, basically, it went to the point where they were actually like, people were not even allowed to go buy groceries, so they had to have stuff delivered like to their door. So, so I was like really scared by this, and and I was hoping that this would not gonna happen. This would not happen in in the West, but I kind of had a nagging feeling that that you could really have something similar. So I wrote an article. And I didn't know about as much about the virus as as I think I know now, but I was I was still having already doubts about whether like the absolute the total lockdown was was a good strategy. And later I learned that what actually probably kind of worked in Wuhan was not really total lockdown, but they they went actually door to door searching for people who are infected and isolated them basically. So those who showed symptoms. They put them in separate quarantine, and also by the time they started the lockdown there, it's actually more and more clear that Wuhan had a huge um, number of infected. Like the serological start, study there showed ten percent um, of people in Wuhan probably were infected, and we also have increasing evidence that the epidemic there actually started like at least as early as November. And there is like some tantalizing new evidence that it actually started, might have started as early as October. Because, you know, like um, in October in Wuhan, there were international military games. And um, I've seen today like uh, members of the French team and of the Swedish team testifying that many of the members got sick with symptoms which are very similar to to what to what covid-19 causes in people with with a disease which is not severe because obviously people who participate in such games are young and probably fit so usually covid-19 wouldn't cause in them like very serious symptoms but what they are saying the symptoms that they say they had and the location obviously suggests that it started even earlier than the earliest estimates. And 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 then when 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 it started in Italy, and especially what really shocked me and pushed me into action was on when on the seventh of 
um, March, Italy, the Italian government decided first to lock down, com- like completely lock down the northern regions, which were the most like severely hit. And then on Monday the 10th, they decided to extend the lockdown to the whole country. And this really shocked me because, you know, I come from a country with with an authoritarian regime and and I would have expected something like this. You mean Russia? Yeah. I would have expected something like this um, to happen in Russia or in China, but I would never, in my worst nightmares, I would never have expected something like this happen to happen in, in Italy and then spread. Because I think Italy actually... It was kind of the spark that started this lockdown fire everywhere in a sense because it's after Italy, you know, and I was in France back then and like everyone was already asking, so when are you going to lockdown? You know, they even on the French television, they had an interview with the former Italian prime minister, Matteo Renzi, and like the journalists, they were really asking him like, so, so do you think that the fact that we are still not locked down, like, do you think it's like it's like normal and stuff and then like in a week their wish was kind of granted you know so so it kind of and and the last thing which really made me interested i i saw um, an article summarizing the views of michael levitt he's a nobel laureate in in chemistry but he's being in 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 that summary at least he was making some sense because you know my background i'm coming from economics so i'm used to seeing um, to seeing mathematical models which are which were which are in my view greatly overused in, in in economics and I'm used to models with that use very questionable assumptions and mostly not because they allow their the practitioners to illuminate the world to understand it better, but mostly because they just want to have this false rigor, you know, seeming rigor of using mathematics, you know, and 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 when I saw what Levitt was saying about epidemiological models, that they were, like, what they were assuming, essentially, um, I was kind of, oh, I need to look into this. And so, and so I, what, what occurred to me is that, so, so, so I knew that I learned that epidemiological models, like like the most basic one, let's say the Imperial College one that was released on the 16th of March, and that had so much of an impact. You know, it's an SIR model. Basically, it doesn't matter. Like there is a lot of technical details there, obviously, but it assumes um, it assumes exponential growth, exponential growth in the epidemic until the moment when the epidemic is discovered and some kind of measures are taken and and there is a related notions of our notion of r naught and r naught is basically the average number of people that an infected person herself infects during the unchecked epidemic stage so i thought wait a minute there isn't possibly an interesting way of seeing whether this exponential growth actually holds confirmed cases obviously a very bad indicator because this depends very much on who is tested and where and whatever and and i decided but death like reported death not an ideal indicator but probably better 
So I looked into just just basic thing. I looked in, into the region of Lombardy, which was the worst hit at the, at the time, and still probably is the mo- most hit. And I um, I basically just plotted the you know the death growth rate per day, you know. And if so, if if the if the epidemic is actually exponential, you would expect that the death grows. And it's important also to understand that death happened with a lag. So on average, a person probably dies, if she dies, probably dies like three weeks after getting infected. So I thought that if you looked at the lag, you would see that instead of having the same rate of, of death growth, you know, which would be true in the exponential epidemic, you actually see it like exploding first and then gradually trending down long before any long even before the epidemic essentially was discovered on February 23 21 sorry and 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 so so this pushed me further into looking in all sort of details and and especially one line of research which we hopefully will discuss today is the research on 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 an even more like micro aspect of how this works, basically, how does it actually physically, um, how does the virus physically transmit, get transmitted from one person to another? Because there are various routes that are suggested, and and obviously on COVID nineteen is such a new disease, you need some some firmer basis. So I looked into the influenza research, although. Although obviously these are kind of somewhat different viruses in in a sense, but but given we are talking about physical aspects, not about what the virus does once it enters the cell, I think the influenza research is quite relevant uh, because in in the end it's it's a viral particle flying through the air. So yeah, just... so we'll, I think we'll we'll get to that when we talk about the different elements of safer outside. Just one more. Uh, preview question before we get into the this specific issue, I think you've you've described it sometimes as taking the approach of a detective. How do you think? I guess how does your approach do you think differ from others? And then I'm curious, just the mechanics of it. Like, what are you doing in terms of research and whatnot on a daily basis? Because you tend to, when you talk about this, you seem to be familiar with a lot of the research, but you also seem to be pretty good at. At, at expressing degrees of confidence, depending on how well established you think something is, which is a big thing I, I look for. So yeah, I'm curious how you think of your approach and then what it looks like to just get on top of this stuff, because obviously this was something uh, new to you, but you at least have done a good job of convincing me that you're on top of it in a more integrated way than even a lot of specialists who obviously would know much more about different specifics involved. Oh yeah, it's well, it's, it's it's a complicated question. I would say. Um, I mean, I think generally, um, I think that I'm I'm much I'm much I like much more the um, like qualitative research, you know, so research which tries to look in to always ask like like I think that science is first and foremost about understanding how things happen and not let's say forecasting or predicting like aggregate patterns, you know, like how many people will die in a given country by June 1, 2020 or something like this. So, so, so I think, I think, I think 
I don't think actually there is something special about me more than about the way yeah I I I like to to approach this and it's the same thing I always try to do in economics is that I always ask myself a question do I really understand how this happens you know it was like you know my my thesis was on the Austrian business cycle theory. I don't know if, if you know about it. Yes. And even there, even though Austrians usually can uh, tend to criticize like mainstream economic models, even there, like in the classic uh, formulations, I still started by not being able to understand how it actually happens on the ground. You know, how does how does someone start a misguided investment project, for example? How does it actually happen? So, so I think... In this particular case uh, of COVID nineteen, yeah, I always try to understand, especially like the most fascin- one of the most fascinating things in in COVID nineteen, especially are so called super spreader events. You know, like events like the church in South South Korea, for example, or the Mulhouse gathering of Catholics in the eastern region of France and stuff like that. So the events which clearly have had a huge impact on spreading the epidemic and potentially these events explain why in some places it's so the the scale of the epidemic is so much higher for example why let's say new zealand or norway have a much smaller epidemic and lower mortality than let's say i don't know belgium and 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 france for example and 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 so 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 in in all of these cases, I just I just try to ask myself a question. Okay, imagine you were at that gathering at Mulhouse, you know, in in that gathering where there are around two thousand people coming and going for several days. So there is obviously there is initially there is one person who is infected. He he or she comes to this event. How does he or she manage to infect? hundreds of participants of this event how does it actually happen i want to understand that so i think it's it's the most it's the best way i could explain this really yeah so i i think i that that makes sense to me and i i think i have a similar kind of disposition where i want to I mean, maybe one way to think of it is i'm not usually attracted to the goal of of making a mathematical model of something but i i want what I'm really excited by is just a precise mental model, or we could think of it as a causal model of how things work, including the nuances. And knowing that sometimes if I have that, I might not be able to make many predictions with it, but I'll at least be able to understand the mechanics of, of what's going on. And with the, it's, I often get the sense even with professionals that they're not sufficiently interested. And in part, there's this feeling, there's been this feeling of different things like, oh, this doesn't really make sense. So with the super spreaders, which is one you've brought more to my attention, but there's this phenomenon of, okay, how is this actually working? Because they're saying there's no aerosol component. It's just spread by, you know, being within six feet of somebody. And yet there seem to be these scenarios where people do seem to be getting it through the air. And in fact, they seem to be getting it worse uh, through the air. And nobody's really talking about that. And what, like, how is that, possible is was that a similar feeling that you had with those issues yeah exactly the, the moment i read about like the differences between aerosol and and droplet and large droplet transmission 
I was thinking like later moment, but how is it possible that someone can, and there are even like different events. Okay. You can say in Mulhouse, okay, it might have happened through one person infecting first a few people and they continued spreading it over like several days, even though it's not proven that someone can start spreading like two days after getting infected. You know, it's a very contentious issue because what we know and this is actually not surprising if you take virology into account, because usually, as, as I understood, I, I I watched a video course on virology on on on, M- on MIT, I think, or Coursera. I don't remember exactly. The actually the top concentration of a virus in someone's organism when someone is infected is not when the person usually has the worst symptoms. It's usually like early before the immune system has like responded in full gear you know and 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 so so what what it seems to be the case from in covid-19 is that the peak infectiousness happens when the person has the initial symptoms you know not like 20 days after infection but it's not clear whether someone who has just been infected you know 2 days ago can actually transmit the virus for example I read um, the most recent study where I think these studies are the most interesting and I wish there were more of them. It's a study from Taiwan. They um, summarize, um, they summarize basically like about a hundred cases of transmission uh, to in various contexts. And they, and there is a lot of interesting stuff there. Like obviously like everywhere, the vast majority of spread is in households and all kinds of stuff but 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 um but what this study says is basically in that study none of the asymptomatic people actually managed to infect anyone so so it seems that the peak of infection happens when someone is um starts having symptoms so yeah so 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 when when i learned about aerosols and and when i learned about the events like the that South Korean church, which is even more impressive than the French super spread event. But there are also other events like, for example, I think in in, in Argentina, where there is like a um a socialized a socialite coming back from Spain and she's sick, but she doesn't she doesn't realize she has COVID nineteen. So she goes to like a party and spreads it to to scores of participants of that party. And obviously, again, you ask the question, but how how is it possible if it's just close contact? You know, like how she doesn't spend an hour with every one of those people <laughs> spitting in their faces? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just and beyond that, if we discuss like droplet and aerosol transmission, droplets. I mean, the reason like we can discuss it further on in like on influenza research, especially. But the reason that um, influenza researchers started to have doubts about large droplets as being the mains route of transmission well it's because they are large you know and and large droplets cannot they have difficulty getting so they can't get into the lower respiratory tract or tract already and they also the upper respiratory tract is, is seems to be better protected you know especially in terms of um in terms of the mucosal barrier and generally so so they had doubts about the large droplets ability of actually seriously infecting someone yeah so so a lot of a lot of stuff here but i I hope i like started answering your your question yeah yeah i just i like now i'm always looking for people with um better approaches 
and and let's say the the approach you're taking, I would describe as the exact opposite of that of our government in terms of just the science of it. I mean, there's there's a complete lack of acknowledging degrees of certainty and uncertainty, and as we'll talk about, just you know, prescribing things, you know, making I mean, making claims, predictions that have very little basis and are often based on just complete, demonstrably wrong assumptions, and then making decisions and not explaining uh, the decision. So what, what I would really love is for the professionals in the field, including the, the government agencies that are, are sharing information, to try to give us the most precise picture possible about how this actually works so we can make intelligent decisions, which then brings us to somebody who's doing the opposite of this, which is my governor, uh, Gavin Newsom. So Gavin Newsom, I'm going to read you a quote from him. Uh, so the, the context is he saw a photo of people on the beach in Newport Beach that whether it was the angle of the photo or the reality or something and, and his views on social distancing, he thought these people are too close together. And pretty soon after, he then said, oh, you're banned from going on the beach. So in, I live in Laguna Beach where we were mostly banned from going on the beach, but there was one county beach that, that's run by the county that's in Laguna Beach. So the city of Laguna Beach couldn't close it. And that was the hub of life in my area for a couple of weeks. And it was really heartening to see people actually going outside and enjoying themselves. And now when you go there, it says uh, closed by executive order of the governor. And here's one of the things, uh, and the idea is this is this is keeping us healthy. I'm saving lives. And he says, this virus doesn't take the weekends off. This virus doesn't go home because it's a beautiful sunny day around our coasts. So I'll just start off by asking you broadly, what's your, what's your reaction to uh, Newsom's policy of telling us to stay inside our homes and telling us to stay off the beaches? Well, yeah, I obviously think that what he this is probably good politics and good demagoguery, um, given his electorate, you know, and obviously in the U.S., um, the Democratic electorate has, for some reason, maybe especially because they are against Trump, you know, and I'm myself not a, not not at all a fan of Trump, you know, but given that Trump initially was reluctant to admit the seriousness of COVID-19, the obvious tribalist reaction was to become anti-Trump and to to embrace the, the sort of um, high level of concern and urgency about, about the virus. So I think what he says is obviously good, good politics, but it doesn't have any serious grounding in reality. I mean, there is... Now, ample research, you know, showing that there is—I wouldn't say there is there is evidence of no spread outside because we can almost never say that. But there is, let's say, there is there is almost no evidence of spread outside in the sense that, for example, there is a large Chinese study where they studied three hundred eighteen clusters in, in of infection, and they found only one involving just two people where it probably happened outside. But even this, like, you know, when you have just one out of hundreds, you might ask yourself a question whether that really happened outside or whether the person 
and it involved just two people, you know, so it strengthens the case. You know, if it involved several people outside, it would be more difficult to to question. But when it involved, as it involved just two people outside, you start asking the question, okay. And also the details, like the details there are that two young people were talking to each other, you know. So it's it's a bit questionable, but possible, but unlikely in my view. It just probably so, that person could not remember how... I didn't want to tell that he or she actually interacted with that person. But anyway, and 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 the second study, which is also interesting, is has been done in Gangelt. Gangelt is an area in the west of Germany, which is sort of the German Wuhan. You know, it's the most affected area. And the group of epidemiologists who studied in detail how how the virus spread there, they not just couldn't find any spread like outdoors. But they actually couldn't find, like, they had trouble finding spread even in restaurants. So it starts, like, to suggest that maybe, like, you need some special conditions for it to to spread. Like, maybe you need, like, places where there are a lot of people at the same time or places where there is poor ventilation. Or if we talk about it further, you need someone who is for some reason, producing a lot, emitting a lot of virus uh, because of some, some, something, whether the severity of the person's infection or, or some kind of something about the anatomy of, of the respiratory tract, or maybe vocal cords or whatever. But, but yes, yeah, so, so that German study is particularly interesting. And in general, I haven't like as much as I looked, I haven't seen any evidence of like much evidence of outdoor spread uh, of so so and 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 yeah I'll so I'll let you say now but obviously we can talk also how how bad it is actually and what are the um, the negative consequences of keeping people inside yeah so we'll get to that in a minute but just so you indicated a little bit but what's in terms of what are the researchers saying about the mechanisms that make it I mean, leaving aside the health benefits of being outside, but just why it seems very low risk, certainly of any kind of high dose transmission, but maybe even of any transmission, like what are the mechanisms? Is it just that the air, you know, that because outside is the air mixes so much? What What is it? Yeah, so we'll we'll get to the question whether the droplet route or the aerosol route, which is important, but at least for the aerosol route, the connection is obvious. So aerosol is... So the distinction there is not like watertight, but it's not like that when when we speak or cough or sneeze, we produce droplets of various sizes. And there is not, like it's obviously a continuum, but I think the best difference that can be summarized is that the largest of those droplets, they have a sort of ballistic trajectory, you know, they behave like, you know, if you throw a ball, it makes this trajectory, you know, like... uh, basically parabolic, you know, in a sense. But it's so heavy that those large droplets are so heavy that they either should reach an object like a person's face or something like this, or they will fall to the the ground. Whereas smaller droplets, which are called aerosols, they are light and they also dry out. And when they dry out, they become like really light. And this basically, it remains essentially, you have highly concentrated virus, you know, flying 
and and there is a fascinating like Japanese video from Japanese researchers who actually try to look what happens when two people are talking to each other or when someone coughs in in a room full of people what happens and they show that the large droplets they fall quickly but the aerosols in in a space without any ventilation they continue to float and they will not basically they will not disappear unless an airflow intervenes and and outside obviously a lot of things change at the same time so so first of all Outside, I, I guess there is always, even if we don't notice it, there are always flows of air. So this quickly dilutes the concentration. And virus is poison, so any poison depends on concentration. You know, so even if you, even if you inhale just a little bit, probably outside, the probability of inhaling enough aerosol to get. I mean, I guess if you, I don't know, if you if you kiss someone outside, you probably you can get it. Or if you like, really spend hours. Yeah, I mean, if you swap. Yeah, I mean, if you go spit into cups and drink it, and I yeah. mean, yeah. But otherwise, but, so it seems the... like with both aerosol and droplets, it would get you know significantly diluted by just the airflow of being outside. Or yeah, or but lessened. especially the aerosol, especially the aerosol. Yeah. Okay. And, so and the second thing is also with aerosol. Also, it seems to be that the virus is vulnerable to to ultraviolet radiation so even if it floats somewhere if 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 it floats in in direct sunlight it will quickly probably get deactivated and stuff like this so but there is another big benefit of staying outside and i guess we can discuss that it's vitamin, yeah so let's let's go to that D. in a in a second but just so just to summarize so yeah, I mean, we have just just in terms of of less. I mean, so if we think about it, this in the context of, I think a lot of evidence to say this is very contagious virus, that's dose dependent in terms of its danger. It's also demographic dependent in terms of its danger, but it's certainly dose dependent in terms of its danger. And so, in general, your goal, I think, a rational goal for most people, is make sure I don't get a high dose of it. And expect that I'll get a dose at some point, but make it uh, a low dose. Well, actually, first let me ask: Do you does that? Do you agree with that, or feel free to counter that? Oh yeah, certainly. Even even I could I would even say that you maybe would want as many people as possible to get small doses, you know, because this would potentially give them immunity without causing significant symptoms, and then it could protect in the future. Um, other members of the community from actually getting infected, sort of boosting herd immunity through low dose exposure, in in, in a sense, you know. And yeah, so I mean, it's it's interesting because I think from an individual perspective, in a sense, I think you'd kind of all things being equal, you have some value to delaying your exposure but the main value is to lowering the dosage of the exposure. But I think it's very arguable that from a societal perspective, you want to minimize the dose and have it as early as possible, at least for the, you know, for those who are not expected to have a, a severe response. It's interesting because, of course, the whole way policy is proceeding is not to take dose into account at all and try to delay people from getting it uh, as much as possible. So 
we have and so basically if this is if the the main goal with with something like this that can't really be contained is so you want to minimize the dose that you get and then okay being outdoors is is really good for that in terms of uh lowering the dose and in terms of to some extent neutralizing it with sunlight so even on that basis alone you would say go outside as much as possible like that would be an like a health recommendation, or at least, I mean, you would even, I think, be encouraging people to go outside much more than they normally do. I, I tend to go outside a lot. I know you do as well, just because we've talked about we both need our walks uh, for our intellectual work and for our mental health. But I think, would you agree? Does it, I mean, even on just in terms of uh, minimizing the risk of the virus, wouldn't you agree that that official sharing information should be encouraging us to go outside, even leaving aside the other benefits? Yeah, yeah, for several reasons. Well, first of all, it's also very interesting because it's those exposure also probably doesn't happen in one go. You know, it's not like you receive the dose, like you drink a poison, you know. It might take place for hours. And it's also interesting what happens inside the body. You know, there was an article, a great article in New Yorker where a woman who got her education in virology she was saying but like it's probably a very complex interaction between the disease and the organism inside and so even if you imagine like you are with someone let's say in the apartment and you and that someone is sick you can't even imagine because it's sort of a dynamic equilibrium in your body you could even ask yourself okay imagine that if i if i get the exposure for two hours but then i go out for several hours and then i return that this could maybe make a difference, even though what I'm saying here is very, very speculative, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, this already, this can minimize the, those exposure also important matters over time, you know, in a sense. And there's also some interesting, really interesting research about the Spanish influenza pandemic, you know, because like we still don't know why it was so lethal. So the leading hypothesis that it was bacterial superinfection in a pre-antibiotic antibiotic era and all the problems created by the world war, the weakened populations, the mass gathering of military and especially like the wounded people in camps and, and military hospitals and stuff like that. But there's also an interesting paper in PLOS One uh, making a hypothesis that the second wave in the autumn of 1918 was so deadly because you had, um, and they look into like a study in Iceland because you had ex like because you had people in households with one or several people who were infected in the same time, so so it multiplied kind of those which which people were receiving and and influence spanish influenza is different from covid-19 in a very big sense in the sense that young people like a certain age subset of young people was highly affected uh, by by the thing so so it um but the point the point remains that the more you can reduce your exposure over time the the better like second second very important point is that, um, and obviously, if you are sick, you also reduce the exposure to other people who are with you in the same environment. So it works kind of both ways. But the second 
point, which is also that, really that's important. a big that's a big one, by the way. So I just want to highlight that. To, right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, um, yeah. So go ahead with your next point. Yeah. So the second point and a huge one is vitamin D. So there is like increasing. Well, so let me let me let me. Sorry, I just want to interrupt you. I don't know if it'll be the last interruption, but it'll. I just want to frame it because here's here's how I'm thinking of it. Just to give a simplified version, and then I want to go into vitamin D. Is you can think of it as. I think in general, what our goal should be as individuals and largely as aggregations of individuals is to minimize, is, is, is to get a minimal dose and also to maximize our immunity, right? Because if we have a well-functioning immune system with a minimal dose, that's the recipe for being asymptomatic or certainly healthy for the vast, vast uh, majority of people. And so if we think about, so far we've talked about outside, outside is great for minimizing dose. Being inside is where people are getting high doses and getting really sick, and even a huge percentage of the infections are even within families. And even if, you know, it's it's there's the case of the college kids being brought with their parents, so there's the forced mixing at the beginning of the lockdown. Uh, but then there's also, because people do have to travel outside their homes for other things, and they're going in other confined spaces like Walmarts and whatnot, then over time there are going to be risks as well. So I think it's an enduring uh, risk of higher dose contamination inside. So outside we have outside gives you lower dose, inside gives you higher dose. And now I think now let's move on to immunity. So what you're saying is outside gives you higher immunity. And so now talk about vitamin D. But I will add something else because you made me think about something else. So so there is also evidence, although it's not like conclusive, but there is evidence that making people stay spend most of the time indoors during the epidemic may actually highly exacerbate this um, this spread. So first of all, those studies which look at something epidemiologists call secondary attack rate, meaning secondary attack rate is, is, um, is relevant to a particular context. So secondary attack rate in households means how many people an average infected person infects in the household. So what is the probability of infection, infecting a person in the household? And what's interesting is that when you look at those studies, which were done in um, countries without total lockdown, you know, like Germany or um, Germany or South Korea or Taiwan, Although it's not clear because I don't know how much we can trust the Chinese data like quantitatively, but but the, those studies suggest that the secondary attack rate in those situations was like 13, 15%. Whereas it, the Italian data is saying that the 25% of all cases are from households. So I don't know how it's it's difficult to, to directly compare, but it might be that um, in Italy you you have a lot more people within households with severe disease because 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 of the lockdown and yeah and switching to switching to vitamin D so vitamin D is, is very important for the functioning of the immune immune system it was actually it is one of the key hypotheses why diseases like influenza or common cold are seasonal the hypothesis is that basically people spend too much time inside and they don't get enough sunlight exposure and 
and that lowers the immune system. And there is also corroborating evidence for COVID-19. So there are a bunch of countries, especially Italy and Spain, have been very badly hit. And in, there is a research showing that it is particularly people in Spain and Italy who have the lowest levels of, especially the elderly, who have the lowest levels of vitamin D approaching and often going beyond like going into vitamin D deficiency territory but also also very interesting everyone probably noticed that in new york especially you have a much higher percentage of um, ethnic minorities with severe disease and disease and mortality and it is no surprise that among them the levels of vitamin d deficiency are much higher probably because the darker skin you have the more difficult it is for you especially in winter months to get enough sun exposure you know because if you are darker skinned you need more sunlight to 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 get more enough vitamin d the same amount of vitamin d yeah so and and the third obviously important point is that they studied people and they found like that almost everyone like several studies almost everyone with severe severe form a severe form of the disease although i need to i need a caveat is that those studies are not like with thousands of people but they're smaller but in those studies it seems to be that like the vast majority of people with the severe form of of the disease uh vitamin like have low vitamin d or vitamin d deficiency and it's not just by the way it might be not just the um the immune system that suffers from vitamin D deficiency, but vitamin D is also seems to be important for, it can reduce thrombosis and thrombosis is increasingly recognized as one of the key, I mean, either the virus directly or the reaction of the immune system does something that uh, causes uh, thrombosis, blood clots in, in COVID-19 patients. So it can be either the thrombosis of the lungs or in some very rare cases, young people have no symptoms, but they have a blood clot in an artery which goes to the brain. And so there were rare cases where people had uh, strokes because of that. But anyway, it, it badly affects the blood circulation. And it's increasingly seems that this is the key mechanism why even like how the lungs stop functioning because it was it was the Italian doctors who found it first that many of the patients had lungs which were not actually as damaged as expected physically so the lungs could do the pumping work you know like but they but there was something that those patients to those doctors those patients resembled people with altitude sickness, you know, not people whose lungs are rigid and full, so much filled with fluid that they cannot uh, contract or contract anymore. But because, but that something was preventing the oxygen from going into, into the blood circulation, basically. And, and so like, obviously you, you could imagine a different way of, um, supplying people with with vitamin D, so you could say, okay, supplementation. But from what I've seen, even though here I'm I'm not I'm not confident about what I'm saying at all, in the sense that 
and it seems to be not not clear from the existing research whether vitamin D supplementation can replace uh, sunlight in 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 this regard. So I'm not gonna not gonna opine on this, but but I think um, yeah, letting people go outside and get their sun, and especially like because it, now it's like May, not not February. Um, like I mean, it's the the better because you know in in winter there is also the question like one of the reasons why people think that people get respiratory diseases in winter is because of what cold air might do to your respiratory tract. But now it's May, so even this effect, you know. So I think yeah, I think for all these reasons, I think not 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 people should not be told to stay at home but they should be like strongly advised to spend as much time as possible outside and the warm weather is is helpful in this regard so i think great so let's let's just uh probably only have 5 or 10 more minutes but i just want to start enumerating other benefits so let's start with any other immune health type benefits of being outside and then we'll talk about immune problems with being stuck inside for uh, long periods of time well in in, in this sense I, I I will need to say that that I did not study um, I'm not yeah I'm not a doctor so so I studied these points in particular because I I've seen them appear in in the research literature I think obviously there are benefits of more movement you know so so like even for thrombosis, you know, I think that being inactive physically for a long time probably doesn't help with better blood circulation. And yeah, obviously also the psychological benefits of um, of going outside, changing the like the environment and stuff like that. I think I think it it could be beneficial. And even like this is like even for a relationship, you know, just because staying all the time with the same people in the same apartment. And and obviously, like, it's not a joke because because it's clear that being confined with all the time with the same people increases levels of, uh, uh, like, uh, in, like uh, conjugal violence, uh, uh, stuff like that. So, so, so I think there are probably a lot of benefits of, of going, of frequently going outside in this sense too. Well, I mean, ones I think about are, I mean, all the physical ones connected to mental health. So just even think about it, common sense. Like what happens if you're stuck outside, that that it has to have an inverse relation, stuck inside rather, has an inverse relationship to mental health. I mean, just generally think being outdoors. Uh, yeah, that's why that's why we punish mind. people by putting them in prison, you know. <laughs> yeah, not not on the beach. <laughs> yeah, prison is not at Laguna um, Beach. It's 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 uh, although yeah, it could be counterintuitive. I mean, you could argue maybe they're not getting enough sunlight and be better insofar as anyone's trying to uh, to rehabilitate. But you just think about what's happening, like being stuck indoors. What that does in terms of depression levels. And then what depression levels do in terms of intake of non-ideal substances, both, uh, you know, well, alcohol, you know, different kinds of recreational drugs, but also less healthy food. I mean, you're seeing all the, you know, just so much of a focus on takeout and Uber Eats and stuff like this. 
and it's just and and I have this experience. I'm sure other people do that. The worse I'm feeling, the more I seek stimulation oh, yeah, from yeah, less healthy food substances, stuff like that. And and part of it is just that there's a certain pleasure associated with that. And when there's no stimulation or it's hard to get stimulation from other things, we, you know, we seek what we can. I mean, pleasure is an essential. I'll even admit that I, I've gone to the grocery store way more just as like something that I can control, particularly not now, but maybe a month ago, like this is something I can control and just getting a treat at the grocery store. Like, Hey, that's a source of pleasure that I am able to get. And so, of course, going to the grocery store is not as good as going to the beach. Oh, yeah, and, and, and adding here, by the way, and adding here, by the way, obesity is or being highly overweight is a huge risk factor also in, in COVID-19. And that's why, for example, the U.S. has higher mortality, even though still much lower than in the older age category, categories, but still like higher than in Europe, you have a lot of people in there. Uh, 40s or 50s, which have very severe disease, you know, which in Europe is almost, you know, the UK, especially not surprising because the UK is, has the highest obesity level in, in Europe. But in Netherlands, I also read reports that even ICU doctors and nurses, they had to say, look, but almost everyone we see, like a lot of people, especially younger, are obese patients basically in the ICU. So obviously, yeah. The lack of activity and the need, yeah, to to have treats, you know, yeah, and and I myself, I caught myself like consuming more like sugary stuff and during because I don't have other than distractions, you know, yeah, yeah, so definitely not not a good thing. Yeah, but people, I just think as a common sense thing, when we're exercising, when we're outside, when we have good social connection, it's just there's not that same feeling of oh yeah i need I, I really need to just escape in a certain sense with this kind of of pleasure like have a little uh pleasure escape so i want to just give an overview of what we uh what i think is important about this and then and then just to connect to the political or some political implications so yeah i think just to go back to the framework i've been using i think a lot of it in terms of what makes sense for individuals and largely for society is for most of us to focus on reducing, you know, uh, you know, getting a low dose exposure, like minimizing the the dose of our exposure, which is different from preventing exposure, and then to maximize our immunity. And on both counts, being outside is really, really good for us, uh, and and uh, and for others, for that matter, in terms of reducing any dose of our transmission, and it's re- it's really good in terms of reducing the dose, and it's really good in terms of heightening uh, immunity and being locked inside or imprisoned inside or encouraged to stay inside is uh, you have a definitely a higher risk of a higher dose, which I think is the key thing. Risk of infection, I think there's a question, but risk of a higher dose, I think, is definitely much higher if you're inside. I mean, much much higher if you're inside all the time. So that means risk of a really adverse outcome. And then decline of immunity is also a big thing. So what we have is that the, and notice we've barely talked at all, if at all, about the other negative consequences of this universal home imprisonment, as I, as I sometimes call it. So I've really wanted to focus on this 
because there is this mythology, I think, that, okay, the lockdown was a really good, intelligent, scientific way of minimizing the uh, the danger of this disease to individuals and to the society at large. Like, okay, the lockdown was a good thing there, but most sane people recognize it had huge adverse consequences, including health consequences. But what I want to emphasize here is, no, the lockdown was not scientific, and particularly in terms of uh, either forcing people— or, you know, forcibly preventing people from being outdoors or encouraging them to not be outdoors, it has done immense damage, even in terms of the danger of COVID-19, uh, leaving aside the incalculably larger damage that it's done uh, in every other area of life. So I have an- one more implication of that, but do you agree with that or do you have some amendment or elaboration on that? Yeah, definitely. And and to, to add to the um, like scientific thing, actually, if you look, because obviously before um, like late December, like before December 2000, like January, I would say 2020, um, COVID-19 was not subject of uh, much scientific research. So what evidence about like spread of the spread of respiratory diseases and and the measures to counteract it existed that evidence from was from influenza a disease which we've been facing for hundreds of years and actually what's interesting first of all what i saw there there is in there are several studies but there is for example a meta-analysis so a meta-analysis is not a direct study but a study summarizing a lot of other studies so to speak and what they honestly said and what shocked me when i read it like the first phrase of the abstract says uh, well Little is known definitively about how influenza transmits. So it's kind of okay. So we are told from early on that all the measures are based on rock solid science. And then you open (laughs) a meta analysis and not something written in 1960, but something written in 2013. And it says, like, ah, yeah, actually, we don't know know, (laughs) definitively how it spreads. But but it's it then goes on to summarize um, a lot of studies about the modes of transmission, so droplets, surface. By the way, there is there has been and still is not any evidence whatsoever of spread through surfaces. So, um, and I think that's pretty common sense. Yeah, even like... though there was so much emphasis on washing hands, and I don't you know don't get me wrong, washing hands deactivates the virus which you have on the hands. But the thing is that the virus doesn't have legs and stuff, so it's like from getting into the on onto the hands, it has like a long way to go before it can infect you. But also like the German study, which I mentioned in Gangout, they isolated some virus from surfaces, but they actually they couldn't like um you know they brought it back to the lab, but they couldn't cultivate it in culture, you know. Even though obviously there are a lot of caveats, like it seems that coronaviruses are difficult to cultivate in culture in general. So it's um, there are questions about it. But 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 the point is that we were told that all this like completely sensible measures were based on rock solid science, like as if it were like Newtonian physics of large <laughs> objects. But like obviously it's not the case. 
and 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 in that like overview it also touches upon social distancing and actually it says that there is not much if any evidence for it and on lockdowns i can't even say anything because lockdowns is honestly it's something which is absolutely unprecedented like in the sense that nothing like this were was ever attempted at such scale yeah you know when i had i don't know if you ever heard my conversation with Ankar Gatte from a couple weeks ago, uh, but he, you know, he had researched this and he just said, you know, the CDC never, when they're talking about severe influenza pandemic risk, like they never contemplated even a citywide lockdown, let alone state or country wide lockdown. And also legally, for example, I don't know about like, obviously the U.S. Constitution doesn't mention anything like this but even the italian well but it, it, the u.s constitution is supposed to say the only things yeah. you're allowed to do and i mean it says definitely things yeah. about due process of law you but can't even, deprive of life liberty or property or yeah, interfere with yeah. the freedom to assemble yeah but i was actually surprised that no one actually challenged the thing in the u.s on the constitutionality grounds but but um well, I think they did, but on a very narrow kind of basis. But but even in it in Italy, they to to justify this lockdown, they used an article of the constitution, which, like, if we look at the historical rationale of this article being in it, it's it's about like quarantining a boat or a building, but it's not it's not remotely something which could justify. Although we know about creative constitutional interpretation even from the history of yeah. US Supreme Court in so it's obviously uh, but but still I mean yeah so 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 I think yeah scientifically speaking lockdowns are something completely it's it's like it's like in economics there was never there was never theoretical evidence for what Federal Reserve did in 2008 and even worse things that the Federal Reserve is doing today. Uh, and other central banks, uh, it's the same thing. Like there was ever any any science before COVID nineteen, there was no science supporting lockdowns. It's just uh, insane. It's an insane measure. So, uh, and to wrap up, it's I, mean, I have a very someone was uh, as being interviewed yesterday by somebody, and I was talking about. Governor Newsom's policies, and uh, and the the host said, "Well, you know, he's a personal friend of mine." And I said, "Well, send my non compliments because I I'm just so upset about uh, what's happening." And the reason I want to talk about this issue in particular of uh, safer outside is again because it shows the uns not only the coercive character of the lockdown uh, and the the cruelty of the lockdown, but just the completely unscientific character of it, where it's actually ordering us to do things that are bad for us with the disease that's supposed to protect us from. So it's not just that it's mono, that it's forcing us to protect ourselves from this at too high a cost, that is, even on an individual level, it's forcing us to have a risk profile with COVID-19 that we would never have. We would we would choose to accept more risk and actually be able to act in our lives in most cases. But it's it's even it's increasing for many of us our risk of getting a dangerous uh, infection 
and that is that's something that really needs to be pointed out because I really appreciate that your work is doing this and a lot of my work is focused on this. It's really important that this lockdown not happen again and part of it not happening again is realizing this was the wrong response in the first place. Not this was a reasonable response, not there was evidence for this, not, well, we didn't have any evidence, so this is the thing that makes sense. It's this was a panic response that was immoral and that was irrational even with respect to the virus, let alone to our lives as a whole. So, uh, Daniel, I'll give you the last word. Any, any final thoughts you want to share with the audience on this before we wrap up? Yeah, I think I think I totally agree with with what you said, and and I think and I think people, yeah, I think the best thing people can do is ask themselves, yeah, how 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 could this how could this had have happened, and how how can we prevent? Because because it is not the last crisis that is gonna happen to um, to humanity, you know, to particular countries and. And we really should maybe go even beyond the context of the epidemic and ask ourselves the question, like, how can we, how have we gone to the point where collectively as a polity, we end up having such a, a completely irrational and, and counterproductive reaction. And especially not focusing, like, one thing that one would want to mention as a, an economist, you would also like, to, to focus on on like what is unseen you know not what just just what is seen but what is unseen and the thing that was unseen in the beginning but which is actually like an elephant in the room or maybe a blue whale in the room I don't know so, <laughs> uh, it's the nursing homes and in many countries um, people who died either there or in hospitals but who were nursing home residents and they they like they amount to at least fifty percent of all death in many U.S. states, maybe two thirds. Like especially if we not if we aren't talking about New York, but yes. Yeah, so, so 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 the thing is that if you pay attention and if you try to focus on policing the whole society, or in general, if your response tries to to micromanage society, even to impose like universal wearing of masks, because I think this is what a lot of people who are even until against lockdowns, they're now embracing these things. We should all wear masks because in Asia, like they all wear masks. And, you know, and I think that in the 21st century, with all the technology that we have and with all the resources that we have and all the ingenuity that we have, um, we can deal with this much better in 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 a targeted way than than by society wide society wide measures. Great, I'm really glad you brought up the point about the nursing homes. Uh, Alex Berenson, who's been an interesting commentator on this, his his pinned tweet has been recently about the fact that people aren't aren't covering the just devastation of nursing homes and the concentration of deaths in nursing homes just totally invalidates a lot of the media. I now see that he switched his pinned tweet to the new Neil Ferguson uh, story, which you've probably seen the funny story. Yeah, and it will be a distraction actually, because even if Neil Ferguson were a saint of social distancing, but yeah, I'll let, right. you, I'll let you explain what the story right, is. Right, right, I know it's, 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 right. It's like the evil, you know, my view of Al Gore wanting to 
destroy civilization is not that my primary argument against him isn't that he flies in a private jet, but that he wants to prevent billions of people from having the energy needed to you know live in a small house. And so there's this uh, <laughs> Neil Ferguson story. So this is the guy who created the Imperial College model. And he it, it reminds me a lot of the energy issue because he's like the Paul Ehrlich of epidemics, as far as I can tell. You know, Paul Ehrlich is this ecologist who's been making horrifically wrong predictions for 50 years and demanding uh, huge restrictions on of freedom uh, on the basis of it. And so Neil Ferguson has, you know, was elevated as this is, I am the master forecaster, and so you got to lock down, otherwise we're all going to die. And then there's been this revelation that he had broken the lockdown to uh, have sexual relations with a married uh, woman. So he resigned uh, over this. So he seems to be uh, affirming it. And that that's the current focus of Alex, Ber Alex Berenson's tweet, which is a little bit vulgar uh, for most episodes of this show. So I won't, I won't read the whole thing. Yeah. But... And I would say it will be also a pity because I mean, it's, it's again, good politics, you know, on, let's say probably on our side to, to show like, look at those masters of our lives who fail to live up to their own and actually boris johnson also i mean all the while everyone was like uh social distancing he was refusing to do any social distancing and ended up like yeah having covid19 himself but but the thing is that i think even if like neil ferguson were had been a saint of social distancing you know uh his ideas would be as bad every bit as bad as 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 they are so i think yeah can, i agree can, i agree totally the same is true of of gavin and yeah and so sometimes, and sometimes it's even better to have people in charge who are not fan fanatics you know i think that usually fanatics are in the sense worse than those who cannot coherently follow their own mm-hmm but this is this is goes way beyond the topic of our conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I didn't even mean to bring it up, but I just I, I was looking for his statement about the other thing, and then I just it, it cracked me up, so I couldn't uh, leave the audience out of that. One. Uh, so Daniel's been no, great but this to have is you cool. on. It's it's fun okay. in a sense because it's like like reality is stranger than fiction kind of things. So it's <laughs> yeah. So I just want to make sure people know how to uh, learn more about you. So I'm gonna you. You have a very standard sounding name, but not a standard spelled name. So it's, I'll just read it on Twitter because I can read letters just as well as, as you can. It has to be spelled out. So at Twitter, you're, it's, so Daniel is D-A-N-I-I-L. So it's uh, at D-A-N-I-I-L. G O R, and so his follower count has been increasing, and I think I I might be responsible for maybe ten percent of his followers. So hopefully more uh, after this, and then he posts at really interesting articles at Medium at medium.com slash at, and it's the same thing. Uh, Daniel Gore D A N I I L G O R. Is there anywhere else people should look? No, I think it's it's pretty much it. I mean, I have some articles on SSRN, but but yeah, it's more like it's a bit more like preprint stuff. Yeah, so Medium and Twitter, yeah, it's basically the main the main outlet, so to speak. Um, awesome. Well, stick around for a minute after. Uh, but uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was it was it was an honor. All right. Well, that, that an honor for me as well. 
Thanks again to Daniel Gorbatenko for coming on the show. I learned a lot from him. And as I mentioned at the outset, we're planning on working on an article together on this topic of safer outside. So I hope you share this episode and also I'll, I'll let you know, I'm not sure when that article will be ready, but I, I do think it's a theme that really needs to be emphasized to discredit the lockdown and also to help guide better policies going forward. All right, this is the second power hour I've done and I've, I've uh, I guess I've done, uh, I did the, I was going to say I've done two in a day. I haven't done, I did part of this one yesterday and part of this one today and I did the other one today, but plus I just did another interview, which I'll share in my newsletter. It was on a podcast called the Bus Driver Podcast and it'll be available on YouTube as well. So you can check out, search my name, the Bus Driver Podcast. That was a really interesting one because the host was familiar with my work, but he asked a bunch of, let's say, challenging questions. And I always think that that's one of the most useful situations when you can see my perspective and my framework challenged. I think I think it's right and I think it stands up well to challenge. So I always welcome that. So check out that. But that that has uh, my voice is starting to die. So I'm, I'm going to wrap up. So I'll just say, as usual, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Also, thanks to everybody who's been supporting our work through the Accelerator program. This is a program that helps fund our research and development efforts, things like the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels 2.0, um, and it also helps our promotional efforts, things like having a TV booker to help me get more interviews and particularly more TV shows. So if, if you believe in the work uh, we're doing and you want to support it during what's a pretty difficult business environment for us. Those contributions help immensely. Really appreciate that. You can do that at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. That's industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. All right. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay outside. It's safer outside. Until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.